Now, remember, way back before the calming of the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, they were crossing to find a place of rest. And that's when Jesus fell asleep on the boat. But everywhere they had gone since that point, they were, they were either crowds or crises that followed them. And Jesus would invariably look upon the people with compassion, and he would tirelessly minister to them. So here we have them heading to a Gentile region where perhaps they can finally get some rest. Matter of fact, Mark's version in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7, he says they entered a house and did not want anyone to know. But then Mark goes on to tell us, yet he could not be hidden. So it seems that, that the design of Jesus and the disciples here is to, is to go and, and hide away a bit and to get some rest. But even there in this Gentile region, Jesus' fame preceded him. And apparently people came to him to this house where he was staying to see him, to hear from him, and to receive mercy and healing from him. And the second reason I think that Jesus goes into this little journey through some Gentile lands is to serve as a contrast. A contrast between the increasingly unreceptive Jews, especially the leaders, and the surprisingly receptive Gentiles. And it serves as a contrast, as I said earlier, between true and false defilement. Notice that Jesus enters a house. Jesus had just been accused of defilement due to his failure to, to adhere to ceremonial hand-washing. How much more now is Jesus going to be defiled by entering the house of someone that lives in Tyre and Sidon? Remember the passage that Dima read earlier from Acts 11 was actually Peter's recounting of what happened in Acts 10. And there in Acts 10 that Peter was hesitant to go to Cornelius' house because the Jewish traditions, just like the traditions of ceremonial hand-washing, prevented the Jews from going into the houses of Gentiles and eating with them. And so Peter was hesitant to go, but God tells him in these visions, he says, don't call any person common or unclean whom I call clean. The common, the word common, is the same word for defiled that we had in last week's text. Could have been translated common. It was, it was the same word in, in, the, in the Hebrew. So it took Peter until Acts chapter 10 to get what his Lord was doing now. By going into the home entire, Jesus is again contrasting his desire to minister to the heart defilement, whereas the Jews were focused on avoiding external defilement. But the situation in Tyre, and thus the contrast with the Jewish, what was happening in Jewish Galilee, is even more um, brought out by what's about to happen. Because not only is Jesus in a Gentile land and in a Gentile home, now in the text, a Gentile of Gentiles is about to come seeking him. Verse 22, behold. Now Mark uses that word light. It means he's getting your attention. Hey, pay attention. Look what's about to happen. Hey, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me. A Canaanite woman. Now, Mark simply says she was a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth. But Matthew goes further, reminding his Jewish readers that the Phoenicians were indeed Canaanites. This is significant. This is the only time in the New Testament that Canaanite is used as a descriptor. The word would immediately uh, conjure up in the minds of the Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel the various Old Testament passages where we see the Canaanites who were the ancient uh, and most despised of Israel's enemies. They were indeed the extremely wicked people whom God had ordered the Israelites to eradicate from the land. So this person, hoping to see Jesus, has three strikes against her. First of all, she's a Gentile. Secondly, she's a woman. And thirdly, 
sees a Gentile woman who isn't just a Gentile, she's a Canaanite. So she comes and she falls down at Jesus' feet. In verse 22, she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And what does she call him? Son of David. She, of all people, recognizes who Jesus really is. The son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, what a contrast is being painted here. The Jewish leaders who had the law that testified to the Christ were missing the Christ. But this pagan woman, separated from the promises and the privileges of God's covenant people, she sees the Christ. And so it is that we have one of the descendants of Israel's ancient enemies, the Canaanites, coming to Israel's Messiah for help, while the descendants of Israel themselves are turning from their own Messiah in disgust. And thus the Jewish reader, first reading this, is sitting on the edge of his seat. How is Jesus going to deal with this Canaanite woman, this most unclean, common, and defiled of all the Gentiles? Well, at first, as we read the text here, at first it may seem that Jesus is treating her exactly the way those Jewish leaders whom he had just left would have treated her. And thus we come to what I believe is one of the most challenging texts in all of the New Testament. So let's read Matthew's version here and, and let's wrestle with how Jesus responds to this woman. Verse 22, let's read it again. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Listen to what Jesus does. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that sounds pretty harsh. It doesn't sound good. It sounds cruel. It sounds unloving. This is certainly one of the harder sayings of Jesus in the Bible. But I think what we're seeing here is something that on the surface looks awful, but that is ultimately very good and very loving. So with that, I want us to go to my next point, which is simply this. Jesus erects disquieting barriers to serve as a test for the woman's faith. He erects some disquieting, troubling, confusing barriers here as a test for this woman's faith. We see three responses here to the woman. Number one, he seemingly ignores her, verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Then secondly, he seemingly rejects her, verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then thirdly, he seemingly insults her. Verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This seems like a very strange action and very strange words coming from the lips of our Lord Jesus. He seemingly goes from bad to worse in this text. Now what is going on here? I do not believe that Jesus is exhibiting some sort of lack of love for this woman. I do not believe Jesus is cold and indifferent to her plea. Instead, I believe this is a test. It's a test of her faith. It's a loving test. And I say that because Jesus will eventually conclude in verse 28 these words, O woman, great is your faith. The word great, mega, megas in the Greek, obviously means large. It means magnificent. But the word also means strong and mature, solid, 
So what impressive, magnificent, mature, solid faith this woman has in Jesus' eyes. So that's where Jesus' words are taking him, to verse 28. But we've got to go through verse 23 to 26 before we get to verse 28. So let's make a few observations about this test that Jesus puts this woman through. First of all, as I said earlier, he seemingly ignores her. He did not answer her a word, according to verse 23, just silence. She's pleading, 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 and he just doesn't say anything. Have you ever gone to someone with a plea or a heartfelt word only to receive the silent treatment? Married folk in here, I know you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing worse than the silent treatment. I would rather have a knockout, drag-out fight than to endure the dreaded silent treatment. Yet that's what Jesus seems to be giving this woman here. But it's here that we see the first hint of her remarkable faith. For the text makes it clear that she was very persistent. In, in the Greek, in, in, verse, in verse 22, the, the verb here was crying. In the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, which means this was a constant, ongoing, repetitive action. So we see here that her mature faith, her great faith, we see what it looks like. It's persistent faith. Do you want to have mature, strong faith as a believer? Well, then you need to have persistent faith that keeps on pushing and keeps on pushing and keeps on pushing. It doesn't give up. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches about persistent faith when he tells us the parable of the, of the man who goes to a friend at midnight and asks for three loaves of bread. Maybe you remember the text. At first he's rejected, but he keeps on knocking, he keeps on asking. And we read in verse 8 of that chapter, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then later in Luke chapter 18, we see something similar. Verse 1 of chapter 18, and he told them a parable to the effect that they should, listen to this, that they ought to always to pray and not to lose heart. So, so Jesus commands, he wants his people praying and not losing heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Jesus wants us to have persistent, continual crying out to him. If an unjust judge is willing to respond to that type of persistence, how much more a loving father in the heavens? Jesus is not put off by persistent prayers or your persistent pleas. Matter of fact, he commands you to be persistent. But he may not respond to your pleas in the timing you desire, nor in the way you desire. Don't misinterpret his silence as a lack of love. Some of you in here feel like that all you hear from Jesus is crickets. The silence is painfully hard. Maybe you feel like Martin Luther. There's a story where Martin Luther was going through a particular dry period during his walk with the Lord. And he complained to his wife, Katie. He complained about God's silence. He said the silence was as if God was dead to him. Well, later that afternoon, he came home and Katie was dressed in black and had all the drapes closed, which was a sign of mourning in that culture. Surprised, Luther asked who had died. And Katie looked at him and said, 
according to your little faith and your moping disposition, God has. Luther got the point. It's a glorious thing, isn't it, that God gives us wives to help foolish men see the truth. The silence of God is a hard thing, but it does not mean that he has abandoned us. But it does seem that the, women, that the, that the disciples here were willing to abandon this woman. Look at verse 23, second half of it. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. A few things to notice about their reaction. Number one, it's selfish. They want some peace and quiet. Number two, it's indifferent. They care more about their needs, not hers. And three, it's prideful. She's crying out after us. Really? It looks to me like she's seeking the son of David, not that ragtag group that are following him. Now, I think there's a, some words of application for us here. How do we respond to people who are in need? How do we respond to people who are in constant need? How do we respond to people whose needs conflict with our needs? How do we react when our desire for peace and quiet is threatened when there's a need that comes our way? How do we respond when people even rub us the wrong way? Or, dare I say, annoy us? Do we roll our eyes and respond like the disciples? I hope not. But of course, at this moment in the story, it seems that Jesus himself doesn't even seem very compassionate. It, gets, it goes from, worse, from, from bad to worse. So Jesus receives her with silence, and then Jesus seems to react to her with rejection. Verse 24, he, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it's not abundantly clear here if Jesus is responding to what the disciples just said or if he's speaking directly to the woman. Regardless, she hears what he says, and what she heard surely seemed to sound like Jesus rejecting her. Now, what Jesus is doing here is stating the theological truth that he, as Israel's Messiah, came first to Israel. Though Jesus is in a Gentile region at this time, at this moment in his earthly ministry, his primary mission focus was Israel. We see this in Matthew 10, verse 5, when Jesus sends out the 12, and he tells them this, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather, verse 6 of that chapter, listen to this phrase, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus has no plans for the Gentiles. Remember that centurion servant in Matthew chapter, in Mark chapter 8, and then the, uh, the Matthew chapter 8, and then the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Okay, Jesus does have love for the Gentiles. Nor does this mean that the Gentiles are some sort of afterthought. But for the Gentile mission to begin in earnest now, at this moment in Jesus' ministry, would have been premature. And this was God's design. That the gospel should be proclaimed first to and through the Jews. And later through spirit and dwelt disciples widen out to the very ends of the earth. So we read in Romans 1.16, for example. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And the story progresses. We, we know as the gospel progressed, ironically, the means that God actually uses to get the gospel to the Gentiles is the rejection of the gospel by most of the Jewish people. Romans eleven eleven Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so we see what, what we see right now is sort of a preview of God's plan for later on. Jesus is increasingly unpopular, abandoned by many at the feeding of the 5,000, scorned by the leaders, and so he journeys into some Gentile lands. But the Gentile mission has not begun in earnest. 
Jesus is letting her know, like he did the Samaritan woman at the well, that salvation is from the Jews. And thus, she was at this time outside of the covenant. In other words, the God of Israel had no obligation to her, and she did not deserve, nor should she expect anything. But here's the beauty of this, friends. Strong faith is faith that already knows that. It's faith that already recognizes that God owes us nothing, and we do not deserve a thing from him. Even those in Israel were all covenant breakers. Therefore, God owed them nothing either. Strong faith has no hint of merit in it. Any inkling of any idea that God owes us anything only produces an impure faith. Mature faith knows God's mercy is totally, absolutely unmerited. God's grace cannot be earned. And so look at her faith-filled response in verse 25. But... Despite the apparent rejection, but she came and knelt. The word here for knelt is proskuneo, which also means worship. She knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Now, notice first of all how the woman's request has shifted from her child to her. Lord, help my daughter. Now, Lord, help me. It reminds me of the man in Mark chapter 9 who has a son who's demon-possessed, and he comes to Jesus and and ask him to make the boy well, ask if Jesus can do it. And Jesus responds saying, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me, Jesus. So too the woman says, Lord, help me. One of the many blessings of having children is that God uses them to strengthen our faith. Very frequently. Now, Look at this simple yet faith-filled response from the woman. Lord, curios, boss, king, master, help, help. I have nothing. I'm bankrupt. I'm weak. You're my only hope. Come to my aid. Help me, a person who does not deserve in any way your love, separated from you, Canaanite by birth, sinner by choice. Lord, help me. This woman has a sincere faith, but Jesus is not done testing it. So he moves from seemingly ignoring her to apparently rejecting her and now responding with what seems to be an insult. Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dog was an insulting, a pejorative term used by the Jews for the Gentiles. It was normally, a ni- it would normally was not a nice thing to call someone a dog. It isn't a nice thing in our day to call someone a dog. Jesus is again driving home the point that she is a Gentile. She is a dog. She is outside with no access to the children's bread. The children, the Jews, have the privilege of getting fed first before the Gentile dogs. But again, this woman is unflappable. She will, like Jacob, wrestle with the Lord until she gets her response. And thus she again passes the test, this time with a bit of wit in her response. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's a, that's a remarkable response. Luther says that she ensnares Christ in his own words. And oh, how Jesus loves to be ensnared by sinners. Yes, Lord, I agree with your assessment. I am a dog. I am unworthy. But is it possible that a little crumb might fall down to a dog such as I? And if so... That'll be plenty for me. Just a crumb. All I need is a crumb, not a loaf, a crumb. And notice where she places herself. As a dog, yes, but as a dog under her master's table. In other words, 
I want to be in your household, even if my role is that of just a little dog. Just a little dog. Dogs in the ancient world were mostly scavengers. But interestingly enough, during this time of Jesus' lifetime, dogs were already being domesticated more frequently and thus sometimes brought into households. The Greek word that Jesus and the woman use here for dog has a suffix on it that makes it mean little dog. In English, we don't have that. We don't have these little suffixes we put on the end of words to change the meaning. In Spanish, we do. So if I, if I say, uh, I see a perro, it's a dog, that's one thing. But if I say, I say that I see a perrito, and I put that little suffix, I-T-O, at the end of perro, perrito, that means a little dog. It means something totally different. Now, it's still insulting. If I call my wife a perro or a perrito, she's not happy with either one of them, all right? So it's, it's still insulting, but the point is there's a different word being used here, and I think it plays into her response. So Jesus says this. He, he calls her this perrito, this little dog. And I think this shows us that what she desires, an option that Jesus leaves open by calling her a little dog, is for her to be incorporated into her master's household but only as a dog who will receive the crumbs. Our our dog, Molly, um, who is a part of our family, but not really, not like I mentioned earlier, okay? Molly loved it when we'd have safe family children coming and staying in our house all the time, usually really young children, because we'd get out the high chair. She'd know the safe family children are coming because her favorite place to hang out, especially at dinner time, was right at the foot of that high chair because she loved to eat up the crumbs that were falling from her master's table. That's all this woman wants. Again, she she exhibits humble faith that recognizes her status and thus she comes to Jesus totally empty-handed with no sense of entitlement, desiring only the dog's portion of Jesus' power. This is a position of total dependence on Jesus to show her mercy, to be her master, to be her provider. This is great faith, but don't take my word for it. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, oh woman, great, magnificent Mature, strong is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus put barriers in place to test and strengthen this woman's faith. And ultimately, that seeming silence, that apparent rejection, that supposed insult were leading to a good end. How does God get most of the glory? By giving us what we want, when we want it, or by bringing us to the end of ourselves so that All praise is directed solely at him. Oh, how we need to see and savor that Jesus' slow response to her is good. Jesus, indeed, even with seemingly harsh words, is a gentle, gentle Savior. Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and the smoldering wick he will not quench. And so it seems that Jesus may put barriers in our lives to test and strengthen and mature our faith. The question is, Is your view of Jesus big enough to believe and to receive that? That he might very well put barriers in your life to test your faith. Jesus is testing this woman. And believe me, Jesus doesn't want a pet dog. He wants a child. And though she comes only desiring the position of a dog, I believe she becomes a child. This is a preview of what will come after Jesus rises again and commissions the disciples to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus brings this Gentile woman to a saving faith. And so my last point here is simply that. Jesus removes ethnic barriers to serve as a preview of the gospel's reach. Matthew 15, 29 says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. 
But Mark's gospel makes it more specific. He gives us more details. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis, remember that from Mark chapter 5? It's a federation of ten Greek cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it was one thing to get away and try to have a quiet retreat in Tyre, but now it's quite another thing for Jesus now to begin to travel through these Gentile regions, taking a long, probably 30 or 50-mile journey to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the Decapolis area, to an area dominated by Gentiles. This would have been quite stunning to the Jews. I think what we're seeing here is a preview and a declaration by Jesus that he has lost sheep even amongst the Gentiles. And this is the direction Matthew's gospel has been taking us. Matthew chapter 10, where we're at, I mean chapter 15, where we're at right now is sort of a halfway house. Okay, between, between Matthew 10, where Jesus sends the, the, the 12 out and telling them not to go into, into Gentile homes. And then Matthew 28, where Jesus sends out the 12, telling them to go to the ends of the earth. So between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28, we have Matthew 15. So it's sort of a preview of what's to come. And that's the way Matthew's gospel progresses. It's beautiful. It's the most Jewish of all the gospels, by the way. And it shows the movement of the gospel to the Gentiles. So as Jesus goes here, venturing into the Decapolis, we see Jesus continuing to teach and to heal. Verse 29. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. But Jesus is showing the Gentiles the same compassion that he had for the children, for the Jews. And Mark goes on to give us even more detail. If you look over at Mark's version, in verse 32, it says, They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay a hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatra, that means be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And here in Mark's account, we read something incredible. Mark chapter 7, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done things well. He even makes the deaf and the mute hear. What he says there in Mark chapter 37, most scholars believe is a pretty clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. This is not Jesus speaking. These are the Gentiles speaking. They are seemingly quoting a messianic prophecy recognizing who Jesus is. And we go back to the version in Matthew. We read in verse 31, the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And listen to what they did. And they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. What a glorious preview of what is to come. The gospel spreading out over all the lands, bringing people from every nation and tribe and language and people to sit around the table of God, not as dogs, but as children, co-heirs, one in Christ. What a glorious preview we have of that in this little story here today. Oh, friends, let us see and savor our Lord Jesus Christ who made a way for Gentile dogs like you and me to be included in his household. Oh, Christian, let today's text encourage you that Jesus is working for your good. You may feel like he's silent right now, but never forget our Lord can identify with you. And though he may seem silent, he has not forgotten you. 
And though he may seem far, he has not rejected you. And though his plans may seem bitter, he has not insulted you. He is maturing you. He is strengthening you. And unbeliever, understand this morning that Christ stood in our place. You see, he went to the cross for sinners like you and me. He went there to take what we deserve for our sin. And in the process, he, as he was there dying on the cross, endured the true and terrifying meaning of silence. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured the silence. He, Jesus, took what we deserved when he was despised and rejected. He was the one who was rejected. And he, as pure, 100% God and 100% man, he went through all of that as he was reviled and insulted. He did not revile in return. He endured the Father's silence. He endured the Father's rejection. And he endured the insults of his people so that we could be his children. So don't, believer, don't hear the silence. Don't hear the apparent rejection. Don't hear the apparent insult and think that God does not love you. Jesus endured it all because he does love you. And unbeliever, put your faith in him. He will wash away your sins with his blood. He will dress you in his righteousness. He will make you a part of his family so that you can sit at the table with the children and not outside with the dogs. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city of, by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water of life come without price. So unbeliever, come. Come. Partake of Jesus. And be part of his family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a good and merciful God. Jesus, you are the only one who can identify with sinners' desperation in a way that makes any difference whatsoever. There are different levels of silence in this room here where you in your sovereign providence have chosen not to respond to prayer requests, not to respond to pleas and cries, or not to respond in the manner in which we want you to respond to those. There's different levels of that here in this room. But Jesus, we know that nothing compares to how you felt on the cross. You can identify with us as perhaps we have felt rejected by maybe even people in the church or, or maybe people who have, who maybe, maybe even your word seems to reject the very thing that we're dealing with or, or maybe the fact that we haven't heard from you. We feel like you've just pushed us aside. You've stiff-armed us. But Father, help us to see that Jesus was rejected and despised in a much greater way than we could ever be rejected. And Jesus, on that cross, you were insulted. You were reviled, yet you did not revile in return. So, Father, as we endure perhaps the, the taunts or the insults of people who do not believe in you, or worse, as we may feel that your plans for us are simply a, an insult, help us to see that Jesus has endured much worse on our behalf. 
And so as we endure and we struggle and we wrestle through these things, Father, I pray that you'd make every believer in here be people who run to Jesus for help in our time of need, for grace. And we know that the way has been opened because Jesus gave his blood on that cross. He died that death we deserve, and he rose again. And in the process, that veil that stood in between us and you was torn in two. The sacrifice was accepted. And so now all who have placed their faith in Christ belong to you and can come directly to you. So give us faith. Give us amazing, strong, mature faith like this woman in this text today. We have that faith because we know we are not dogs. We are children. We are children in Christ. So Lord, we thank you. Pray now that you'd hear us as we sing this last song to you and we respond with our offerings, with our prayers, with uh, Lord, just where we are silently, just, just meditating upon what you've shown us in your word. Lord, may this time of response as we sing be pleasing to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.